On episode 132 of The Vincast, I chat with Tasmanian winemaking pioneer Steve Lubiana. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino, and thank you for joining me on another episode. Uh, It's great to have another one out and about and let you listen to another fascinating wine story. Uh, And this is an episode that I recorded last year when I happened to be down in Hobart. Uh, I was thrilled to be able to sit down with uh, cult-famed uh, pioneer uh, winemaker vigneron Steve Lubiana of Stefano Lubiana Wines, uh, and it was fascinating to to find out about his background uh, and how they got started down there. So uh, I'm really really uh, grateful to have been able to chat with him. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please stick around until the end so you can find out how to get in touch with us to let us know. Uh, please do go and leave a rating and review on the iTunes page for the Vincast. And show your appreciation. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. Steve, we are sitting here in the gorgeous Derwent Valley on a beautiful, sunny, warm day. Mm-hmm. Lovely spring day. Lovely. Um, and uh, we're about to chat. Welcome on the Vincast. Thank you very much for making some time. Thanks, James. I, uh, I start every episode of my podcast by asking my guests if they can remember the uh, the earliest interaction they had with wine that made them kind of think about it in a different way that potentially put them on the path of uh, mm-hmm. a life in the wine industry? Mm. Um, a tricky one for me because I was always surrounded by wine from a very young age. Um, you know, being son of a winemaker, you know, I'd, um, as a, you know, from, from a little taco, I'd come home from primary school and have lunch and there'd be winemakers there and, um, and so it was just part of my life. So it wasn't anything different or extraordinary. It was it was very ordinary, very normal. Sure. And um, and my father never really you know pushed me to become a winemaker, or, or he just uh, did his own thing. And so I just became curious. And um, so yeah, well, I made my I started my first wine when I was twelve years old. It was uh, Amarone. I um, really I was really into Amarones um, when I was very young, and um, yeah. So, so where did you grow up? In the Riverland in South Australia, a small town called Marook. Right, okay. Yeah. And uh, are you second generation Australian? Were you born in Australia? Yes, and I was born in Australia, so I'm first generation Australian. First generation, sorry, and, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and your your parents, grandparents, and parents both moved over from Italy. They were displaced persons after the Second World War. So right. They came from Istria to uh, to uh, Melbourne, and then from Melbourne. My grandfather bought an old distillery uh-huh. and converted it into a winery, and then my father followed quickly thereafter. Right. With, yeah. um, back in the, in the homeland, were they involved in agriculture of any kind? In uh, a little bit of agriculture, but mostly winemaking, buying grapes. My my grandfather was a consultant, so he would travel around Italy um, to buy wine for other people. He had a very good palate, so he was like a palate for hire. And uh, While my father, he was very young, when he came to Australia, so he started his winemaking in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after under the guidance of my grandfather. 
so the the move up <clears throat> to to the Riverland mm-hmm. was this around the time that they were kind of looking at irrigating and opening up, you know, the Murray Darling Basin oh, for it was nineteen fifty five. Um, so, so so it was a bit before remember. that. Then, yeah. yeah. Okay, but but that was kind of the idea was to mm. just just to continue that kind of business that they mm. had back in uh, in in, in Europe in, yeah. in Italy yeah. to, to do it. And it was you know it was focused on on bulk wine, so it's focused on cask and just you know everyday drinking wine, mm-hmm. lots of it. Mm-hmm. You know, no mucking around, just knock off a couple of bottles at lunchtime or. So it was vocational. It was business. It wasn't. It was business. There yeah. wasn't. There wasn't really much romanticism around it for them. No. No. Right. Okay. Well, and and was wine drunk a lot at home? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when we say no romanticism, it was it was it was an essential part of the diet. Right. You know, you you just wouldn't consider sitting down to eat food and pasta without a, a you know a glass of wine. Yeah. So it was an um, essential part of of, of living. So with, without being aware of it, you kind of grew up in this culture of, you know, wine being part of a meal and part of family, and it's just a, a nourishment kind of thing. And there's nourishment also, but then the wine. When I'd come home from, you know, from from primary school, when I was, you know, you, you know, well, I'm thinking now, year six or year seven, I remember, and the winemakers always played tricks with me and say, okay, you know, here's three glasses of Shiraz. One's got salt in it; they just get salt off the table. One's got a you know, a little bit of water in it. We know what's the difference between the two, these three Shirazes, mm-hmm. and I, you know, try and find out what's different. Wow! And then, and then they already start training me. You know, you know, which which is the most tannic of these wines? Here's some Grenache, here's some Malbec, and here's some um, Carignan. And um, you know, so it's already spr- you know starting to, uh, and you know, my father's too busy eating his pork knuckle and you know, prosciutto, and <laughs> but these other these other guys they're always playing with me, I suppose. Right. You know? Um, was, was, did your grandfather get involved with that no, as well? No, not at no? all. No, okay. he was very quiet. He was because he, 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 he had the palate. So he had the palate. I'm wouldn't speak to, just... to he was just very quiet, reserved person. Never he didn't say anything, boo about anything. But he'd sit in his room with say you know twenty measuring cylinders and just blend for hours, and then <laughs> you know come up with this here. Yeah, this is the wine, and you know it was a cracker. You know he's very good at it. Right. Uh, how old were you when you kind of thought that wine might be a, a career path for you? Uh, I was pretty convinced at a fairly young age. So I think probably when I was about, uh, you know, ten, something like that. Really? Okay. Mm. But w- w- was it a thought of continuing in the family business or kind of following a, a, your own path as far as making wine? Oh, too, too young. I just thought it was exciting because there's always a lot of fun. There's a lot of action going on down the winery. And I thought, well, this is this is a lot of fun. And you know, wasn't drinking a lot of wine back then. I was, you know, drinking water and wine. My parents would give me, you know, a bit yeah. of a mixture. But um, it was just exciting. I thought this is the industry I want to be involved in. I had no concept of what quality was or anything like that. I was just too young. Sure. But I was I was drinking some, you know, some interesting wines. And, um, and you, as a very young palate, it started to form very slowly. Yeah. And you made your first wine at 12. Like- yeah, well, I never actually finished it. I started it. So I started, picked, got the, somebody to pick the grapes, and I laid them out on mats to, to, to dry them out because I really liked Amarone. And they were there for about two weeks. And then in the end, somebody got, got the shits and, and chucked it all into, it, into a, a ferment and got rid of it. Wow. So I never got to finish it. Oh, no. Yeah. It would have been amazing if you still had a bottle of It would of that. have been, yeah. <laughs> So, um, what was the kind of the the pathway for you to sort of learn more about wine and 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 head towards a career in wine industry? Um, so, 
I suppose the pathway was, <clears throat> okay, I decided to, I wanted to become a winemaker. So back then it was a, you needed to go to uni and, and study winemaking. So I went to Roseworthy and studied winemaking there. And um, that was just more more beer drinking than, than winemaking. Yes. You know, it was just, you know, a lot of fun and um, made some very good friends, which, you know, some my best friends from, from uh, you know, from, from all, of all time. Was and it was it good to sort of interact with people from different backgrounds, different parts of Australia? Oh, that's right. Learning and, how to make you know, wine. That's and where you, you, you sharing you, ideas. You get the you know because my my folks weren't drinking German Rieslings or you know Spanish wines or um, you know wines from other parts of the world. They were just you know into making wholesome, easy drinking wines. And so at at Rosewood is where I was exposed to all these different varieties and and styles mm-hmm. through drinking with friends. Yeah. And, and um, I think that's where, like, my son is at at at, at Lad Uni studying winemaking <coughs> now, and he's 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 discovering exactly the same thing with his friends. Sure, seeing wines not from Tasmania. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and and so you you finished the qualifications there. Did you yep. did you get any vintage experience at that point? Yeah. So you know, my first vintage was at uh, Luan <laughs> Estate in Margaret River. Um, that was the must have been the eighty four vintage. 84 vintage. What was the 84 vintage like? So 84 vintage, um, that was pretty good, I think, what I can remember. Um, you know, a long time ago, but it was, um, yeah, <coughs> good wines. You know, we're basically young interns, you, all you get to do is do all the cleaning, you know, clean the press, clean the floors, clean the tanks, and, and you know, <coughs> fork out, pump out, or shovel out all the fermenters. So, But it was good, yeah. Great place. I really loved Margaret River. It was really good. I was, you know, a keen surfer then, so... It was a good choice. Yes, I have had uh, some former guests to the podcast say my river was quite desirable because because mm. you get to you know make wine, but you also can go and have a surf, mm. <laughs> get yeah. up early enough. Um, that, that's that was your first vintage experience. Yes. That would have been a. I mean, apart from as a as a as a as a back at home as a young kid at yeah, home, yeah, yeah, working you know summer holidays in the winery, being you know. exposed to a completely different yeah. different yeah. Uh, different region, different yeah. varieties, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, when when you um, finished your qualifications, what was sort of the first job? So, well, first job was uh, I travelled Europe. I went around Europe, so I worked in Champagne for almost a year. Yeah. Um, worked in uh, a little place called um, Porsche Frere um, in uh, Bissoyle. Mm-hmm. So I worked the, the vintage there, and then worked up in the mountains, um, snow skiing. Came home, did a vintage. Back to Europe again, and then did a vintage in Castello di Arma in um, Chianti, mm-hmm. Gaiole. Mm-hmm. That was fantastic. That was really good. Working again with something, lots of Sangiovese and and um, Canaiolo and those other varieties. It's, that was that was very eye opening. And then um, and then after that, sort of uh, came back and sort of settled down and, and worked in my father's business. Sort of took leased his business, took over the business. He sort of semi-retired, moved to the Barossa. We had he had another winery, and um, yeah, I ran that for a few years. Met my wife, and then um, then we decided that okay, look, we don't want don't really want to stay here. Mm. We really want to you know make fine wines, and um, so it was still very much in the bulk, still bulk, bulk end yeah. of the, the, the business. Yeah, so we're doing about three thousand tons. You know, it was myself, my wife, and um, one seller hand. And then we got, had a little bit of help during vintage, but it was a very well set up winery. 
and um, it was just making a lot, of, a lot of bulk wine, tankers of wine and juice going all over the place. So this would have been at a time where like a lot more kind of technology was being introduced and better, more efficient ways of making wine in larger volumes. Um, do you kind of get a bit tired of that and sort of say, look, I, I want to look at it on a more micro level and be a bit more hands-on and, you know, smaller, oh, absolutely. Pa- small, smaller, smaller batches, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, um, I mean, I, I was really fell in love with sparkling wine after, you know, my, my, um, tour in Champagne and, um, and so I really wanted to make sparkling. That was my key driver. Yep. So I needed a, a cold climate. I, I'd made my first sparkling wine in, uh, would have been, uh, Eighty-seven mm-hmm. from Pinot grown in Renmark. Really? And, okay. um, yeah, and I was trying to sell that around Adelaide and playing around with it, and then I realised now I really need to get to somewhere colder if I wanted to make sparkling sparkling wine. Right. And and then look, I looked around Australia and ended up in in Tassie. How long did you spend kind of looking about at a, different about places? A year, year and a half. Yeah. And what was it about Tasmania that appealed apart from the fact that it was a cool climate? Um. That was it, the right? Cook, and the soil, yeah. It was no, we, you know, whether it was in the middle of a, a forest and you know, ten thousand miles from the closest town, we didn't really care. It was what is the best site, the best soil and climate to make the grapes, to grow grapes. It's it's now pretty widely accepted that Tasmania is the premier region in Australia for sparkling wine production. Mm. Back then, was there much? Being no, the, no, so none this, at all. It so. was, when I came over, there hadn't been a single bottle released. This is back in nineteen eighty eight. And I was looking around Tasmania, and um, uh, um, Graham Wilshere—he was probably the, the only person that was really into sparkling—and he showed me some stuff they had on Tirage, and I thought, "Well, this is pretty good." And um, I thought, "Yeah, no, this is." And just tasting the strawberries and the fruit and, and the wines that were grown here, I'd, I'd seen some Piper's Brook wines that Andrew Perry was making, and I thought, "Well, this is this is fantastic," you know, mm. and it's exactly where I want to be. So. Um what was the, the the first move? You 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 kind of came yeah. upon um, so, yeah, this, looked, this particular looked, part of had to uh, find a, a piece of land. So we looked up the Tamar Valley, looked around Piper's area, and then found this this parcel of land in, in Granton, and we thought, well, this is exactly what I really want. I really want a poor soil site in a in a cool climate, so I can control the vigor. I don't want to be have vigor control me as a winemaker as mm. a, or a vigneron, mm. and. Um, yeah, I thought this is it, perfect. So the first vines you planted were primarily or exclusively for the purposes of sparkling production. Uh, primarily, you know, we always leave the door open, I suppose, and and you know, as as time has shown that we've, uh, apart from sparkling, we, we, we actually you now we make we saw more red wine, more red Pinot Noir than we do in sparkling. So probably seventy percent of our production is Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. and of that. The majority is, is, is dry red table wine. Was there much in this part of Tasmania at that point as far There's as There's nothing in, in Granton in this whole area here, not a single grape. Oh, hang on. There was a little bit. Uh, Kerry Carlin had a little bit of little uh, a small vineyard at that time. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, what was what was the uh, the idea with the planting of, of the vines? How much, was it was just Pinot Noir and Chardonnay? Yeah, so... Um, uh, we started off with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc. Right, okay. Yeah, which has historically had, had the short history of 
of, of more short modern history of Tasmanian wine mm-hmm. um, had shown to be produce really good grapes. Right. Because you know, grapes have been grown here for a, quite a while, yeah, from back in the 1800s or something like that. Right, okay. Yeah, like cause when Sydney was settled and Hobart was settled, because Sydney and Hobart to oldest you know, couple of cities in, in Australia. Yeah. Um, and, and grapes were brought down to Mariah Island back in the 18-something, I can't remember what it was. So these are some of the, 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 mm. the ones that, brought, that James Busby brought Busby's, out? Busby's, yeah. That's yeah, right. okay. Uh, what, what was the um, the sourcing of those, um, the, the vine material? Yes, the vine material was uh, mostly local um, to start with because there wasn't many, it was, it was all um, UC Davis material primarily. Yeah. And then as the years went on, there was more st- stuff that came in from France, that was, you know, Bernard selection clones, and then we, as they came on, we 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 took them on and planted them as well. Yep. And um, and now we're finding that there's a mixture, so you know, we don't really find any one particular clone is something that we want to um, have any emphasis on, but rather just a mixture of clones. You know, looking at a clone, going, oh, this is the clone that's going to yeah. save us and change everything no, completely. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not. Um. What, what was uh, did you have in mind as far as the, the the way you wanted to work in the in the vineyards? Did you have an idea at yeah. that point? So um, we were pretty much back in in the late eighties, uh, convinced that biodynamics was the way to go. Right. Okay. So I actually bought my first steering machine either the year we came over or just before we came to Tasmania in nineteen ninety, and so we planted our first vineyard organically. With the you know the idea to run it um, biodynamically, and we had all second we had no money right, so we had second hand posts and second hand drip tube and 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 it was on a quite a steep slope, and you know we had nothing but grief, so we said, oh, this is just not working, so we we pulled the pin on that vineyard and then planted another vineyard on a flatter ground and ran that conventionally. We did that for well several years until you know back in two thousand and Back in 2010, we, we we thought, oh well, look, you know, hang on a minute, we're um, we came here to, to grow grapes biodynamically, and we've sort of been way, you know, sort of sti- sort of <clears throat> going off the garden path a little bit, and um, need to get back on track. And so, in 2010, we applied for, um, we decided to to start the certification start process. Certification, yeah. So in biodynamics. In biodynamics, yeah. But before that, we'd always been. Compost was always an important part. We'd always been putting on compost. Yep. And over the years, we dropped all our synthetic... Um, fertilizers? Uh, no. Um, yeah, f- fertilizers, yes, and synthetic uh, chemicals. So we were so- copper and sulfur for like about five, six years before we even applied for biodynamics. Mm. So we were 90% there. The only thing was we were still spraying Roundup right. under the vines because... That's the hardest part in, in in organics is is weed control. Everything yeah. else is pretty much easy. Yeah, yeah. Where did you? How did you kind of come upon biodynamics as a, a way of working uh, in terms of vineyards? That was um, Four Corners. I did a um, Four Corners on ABC did a um, story on uh, Alex Podolinsky. Yeah. Um, okay. You know the dude from Victoria. Yeah, I and, mean so, um, several no, several. Um, Former guests have talked about. I mean, even uh, I had a um, one of an Italian producer, biodynamic producer, who was mm-hmm. more influenced by Alex than by Steiner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Alex was very, you know, strict sort of Steiner school, and um, 
and when I saw the, the story about it, I, I thought, well, that's exactly, you know, what we're about. Because my father found a old um, uh, chart or we would call it a – it was basically how to make wine by the moon that my great-grandfather had made. Okay. So, and it showed the moon symbols and what to do, and he had drawn it himself – and as a child, I remember seeing that. We've lost, we, we've tried to find it, we can't find it, which is a real bugger. It would have been really beautiful to so have that. So cool, yeah. Yeah, but, um, and that sort of, that with that memory in my mind, and then seeing Pollinson and saying, well, hang on, this is, all, this is all clicking, it makes sense. You know, working how we used to work. So, and, 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 and in more recent years, uh, I've been thinking, well, this is really, I mean, Steiner does do some interesting stuff with homeopathics and, and the constellations from far planets, but really the Aztecs and you know the Persians have been farming with the moon and the stars for you know millennia, mm-hmm. and this is just going back to what we used to do, um, you know, a couple thousand years ago. Yeah, and so and and Steiner's saying, hang on, we can do a few other little things as well by using some preparations and some homeopathics. So I think it's yeah, it's. It's a, a, a re- revisitation of of an old school of farming. In the same way that there are a lot of winemaking techniques which are being reintroduced, you know, these, mm. these, but they're just old, like skin mm. contact with white varieties or mm. use of amphora. You know, that's that's an old technique that mm. kind of got sort of put aside as more modern, as understanding came, you know, science, that kind of thing. Uh, but... You know, I, I like the fact that people are kind of reintroducing old techniques, but with a better understanding about how you can work to not have completely faulty wine. Mm. Um, so, did biodynamics come first, or did Tasmania come first? Did you kind of get the idea to do biodynamics after you'd very made the pretty much at the same time, similar okay. similar time? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was hard work. To, Very to hard start work. Off with. Yeah, we had we were broke. We had nothing. You know, we found this property, and then we you know borrowed some money from the bank, and had also had money borrowed from the the guy. What do you call it? Vendor finance. The guy who owned the property, so mm-hmm. he was financing us as well, and then and some a little bit of help from the family as well. Eight, interest rates were eighteen percent. Mm-hmm. So we're paying. You know, we look today as two percent or one. You know, five percent. It's just nothing. Yeah. So you know, interest rates were just killing us, and. Um, and so when we bought the place, you know, we ran it as a market because it was a market garden. We ran that for about 18 months and said, look, we're just losing more money. And then we thought, right, we've got, we've got to get back to what, we're, what we came here for. And uh, my wife was working for a local company. And, and then I thought, right, we'll just set up the winery and, and do some contract winemaking um, and buy some grapes in the meantime. And um, and so that got us going. The contract winemaking got us going, got some liquidity in the business so we could invest that into um, our vineyards mm. to get some vines planted um, to get us going. Was it really difficult at that time considering that there really wasn't el- much else down here and there wasn't kind of a lot of knowledge about what might have been done in the past and and you couldn't kind of share ideas and show what you were doing yeah, to someone? So what do you think? What definitely do you think challenging. This? Um, I mean, I, you know, had had my um, experience or you know um, university degree, but that doesn't really help you when you're just sort of thrown out to a deep end and uh, you, you, 
you, you work on the experiences from local people, from what varieties are growing and seem to be doing well. Uh, but at, at the end, it's you got to you got to sink or swim, I suppose, and um, have a good go at it. What were, what were the first wines that you made from, uh, from uh, your own fruit? Pinot uh, Noir, uh, dry red, mm-hmm. which we would buy grapes and then sell that in um, bulk in thousand liter pelicons to a friend of mine in in um, who a contact I'd made in Riverland in Melbourne, and he would uh, bottle it and sell it mm. in Melbourne. So mm-hmm. I was selling, um, and then and then we started. Was s- it being sold as Pinot or was sold as dry red? I'm not too sure. I don't know. We, when it left us, we just got the check, and <laughs> that's all we were okay. worried about. <laughs> we can eat. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was like that. It was. It was really like we can eat. Because because that was still before Pinot really took off. Like, yeah. and that was when there was twenty percent sales tax on wine and, and no no rebate. You know, ah, right. things, things were things were tough. Yeah. Um, what was the the first crop you got from your own vineyard? So that would have been Pinot and Chardonnay, both. Yeah. When, when was that? That was ninety three. Right. Yeah. Um, what were some of the the challenges as far as your own stuff in yeah, terms I of mean, making in terms of making the wine as well? I was just learning how to handle you know the fruit the the you know the, the the delicacy of the fruit down here you know instead of using sort of South Australian techniques and high extraction and trying to make a big red wine that it just just doesn't work with Pinot Noir you have to be much light handed you know lighter handed and Less is more. Yeah, respect the fruit, you know. Yeah. Um, so when you bottled your first wine and took it to market, again, what was what was the kind of the early um, response from? Yeah, it was good from people yeah. out there considering that Tasmanian wine was still not kind of where it certainly sits mm. today as being one of the premier cool climate mm. wine regions in Australia. Yeah, no response was very was good and. Um, so basically, you know, from day one, we sold everything we made and we just bought and made as much wine as we possibly could for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And for 15 years, we sold everything we could possibly make. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, you know, get the maximum amount of grapes and turn it into wine and it all sold. So it was, um, it was, it was good. Yeah. No, no, no problems there. And then, you know, I suppose as more competition, as more people started making wine and, and then, and then things were started to get a little bit, you know, a bit tighter, a bit harder to sell. But still, even to today, we sell all our wines pretty well, which is good. Yeah. Um, what were the the sort of the main markets for your wine in that kind of first? Yeah. The first so definitely years? Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, which has grown to uh, Brisbane, is a very good market for us as well. And then, and to a lesser extent, South Australia and. And Western Australia, South Australia, difficult because you know they're very parochial. Yeah, parochial, and you know, when I, even when I was there, you know, it was it was Cabernet and Shiraz, and they were the, the varieties of the day, and um, and so Pinot Noir never had a had a hope in hell. Mm. Um, but while um, I think Melbourne is a bit more cosmopolitan, and in the early days they were prepared to to drink widely. Sure. Mm. Uh, what about the local market? Did how did that? Yeah, change local market was very time? good. Yeah, no, it was um, it was an important market for us um, selling wine locally because the uh, Tassie people were generally you know very supportive and they would drink Tasmanian wine. They always want always wanted their bigger reds as well, and so that's why hence we we planted some Merlot, not just for the local market, 
um, but also uh, for frost protection, you know, ripening later and, uh, or, you know, flowering later, it would uh, give us some uh, security there. So, yeah, we needed some something else apart from Merlot, uh, or sorry, Pinot, um, for the local market. But the local market was very good, mm. yeah. And and you would um, still have an opportunity to do a bit of travel, whether it was going to sort of sell yes, wine or, yeah, yeah. or go, so, and go and visit other wine regions, wine producers. First few years while we were in Tassie, it was it was a bit hard, but then <clears throat> once we got a, a bit established, I had more time, and and um, September I could um, get over to Europe, and I you know did vintages in um, oh, I'm trying to remember now, so uh, a couple of vintages in Burgundy for uh, Chateau de Chamilly uh, in Mercury. And then uh, vintages in um, in uh, Austria for uh, Pitnauer, and then a vintage in um, um, Os- uh, with uh, Radicon in what's the name Oslavia. Oslavia. Yeah. Um, was yeah. was that a good opportunity to kind of get out of out of Tassie and and the the varieties you're working with and and maybe wine making techniques you're using and kind of be exposed to some other yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean the main some ideas. Yeah, the main thing is you get inspiration and see how people approach their wines. It's not at looking at getting any recipes or anything like that. Um, it's more about understanding how other winemakers approach their winemaking. Mm. You know their um, their direction and their inspiration, or you know, where they you know get their ideas from. And then I can relate. I get, you know, like for example, when I was working at Pitnauer, my job was analysis for the. I did all. I did all the analysis of the grapes coming into the winery, which was great because that was just a broom handle pushed into the bin, and I checked the sugar level with a refractometer, and that was it. So there's no analysis, no sugar, pH, acid, <laughs> yeah. alcohol, none of that crap. Sulfurs. You just when you're experienced winemaker, you know you don't need to have all these numbers. Yeah. Just forget it. Just trust your palate and go with that. Yeah. And I thought, whoa, that was really, you know, eye-opening for me. You know, because how old are you? I'm, you know, okay, you know, I'm 55 years old. I've been making wine for 35 years. Shit, you should bloody have an idea. So you do know, you know, believe in yourself. Yeah. I mean, that comes with experience and a relationship with the That's vineyard. Right. And and just trusting that you mm. you sort of have a, a decent idea about what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. What's, what, 27, 28 years here with one vineyard, one site. Yeah. Uh, you, you get to know the terroirs, even parcels, square meterage. So that's a one hectare block. Well, I know that top corner of there's, you know, it dries out a bit. That bottom corner needs extra leaf plucking. And that other side over there, well, you know, we need to, you know, leave more buds on the cane over there. And you get to know all those little intricacies after such a long period of time. Mm. Yeah. Have you seen the uh, Tasmanian wine industry? Kind of change over the past twenty plus years. Yeah, it's really in the last sort of five years. It's it's, it's very slow to start with, and um, you know to get really any traction. But in the last sort of five six years, we've had a, a flush of new winemakers and, and young young blood coming into the state, which is really good because uh, the you know it's we're still very very small. I think we're only about six thousand hectares. I think for the whole state, something like that, or six thousand tons, something like that. I'm not too sure on, on numbers. But um, it's um, yeah, it's it's changed a lot, and um, I think it's got it's still got a, a big future ahead. You know, especially with climate change. You know, we're really noticing, you know, things getting quite warm and dry mm-hmm. uh, more and more so compared to you know when I was here twenty five years ago. It was a lot cooler. 
Yeah. yeah. How, how do you think that um, the Tasmanian wine industry should sort of be evolving with something like climate change and how, how, could, it, how could they kind of <clears throat> cope with uh, well, the challenges? What we want here in Tasmania is a sort of steady um, growth. Uh, we don't want, you know, 100 winemakers coming down and wanting to plant up 50 hectares each. I think that would be bad for the industry, bad for everybody. Um, and it's almost impossible to do anyway because Tassie, you know, you're lucky to find, you know, 20 hectare blocks of land that are in, in one parcel because it's so hilly and, and the um, – Microclimate's so varied. You know, you, you can have a hill that's mostly north-facing and then the, the other half sort of south-facing. We mm. don't want to be planning on the south-facing slope. Mm. Um, so it's sort of self-limiting in, in, a, in a way, Tasmania, the, 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 the topography of it. Over the years, how have you changed <coughs> as far as what varieties you work with and maybe different winemaking styles you might have been mm. experimenting with and, and, and trialling? Well, you know, varieties, well, like we're, we're drinking right now while we're having this this lovely talk, we're having sipping on some Shiraz, which I never would have, have thought of planting, you know, 15 years ago. Um, but now it's just getting warmer, you know, like today. You can see the, it's just beautiful spring day and um, we can see that we can ripen up these, you know, later uh, varieties a lot better than we thought we could. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say Nebbiolo might be pushing it a bit, um, but the other, you know, mid to mid to late, not super late, but mid mid ripening varieties are going to be successful down here, mm -hmm. and uh, I think there's great scope for those. Yeah, you you just mentioned Nebbiolo, mm -hmm. and being that to your um, family background is Italian. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, did you kind of it's as working with Italian grape varieties mm -hmm. been a f somewhat recent kind of idea in your mind, yeah. or had you possibly intended to do it, but there just sort I mean, of wasn't all, the vine material available? Yeah, all those. Um, also, just my experiences. I have, you know, um, only worked a vintage in in, in in Chianti once, and but I've got a lot of friends in in Burgundy, and I suppose my interest was swayed more to to France rather than Italy. But saying that, I uh, I like the you know the savouriness of Italian varieties, and um, and um, I think there's you know some scope there, and 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 finding something that grows in your site. So my blinkers are open to you know finding what works in our site, whether it's French, I don't care, you know, Spanish, German, whatever. It's what grows best in your area, and you can make the the the, the best you know drinking wine out of that. Mm -hmm. And so the doors and like so Nebbiolo, <clears throat> when we tr tried to to grow that for um, make that for um, make it into a red wine, we found it you know a little bit difficult. But as a sparkling base, as a as a light wine, as a white almost like a white wine or a rosé, fantastic. Mm. So you know you, you get surprises along the way. Yeah. And what about um, in the cellars? Have you kind of been? You know, expanding and trying different stuff there. Yeah, so in the cellar, you know, we've always been, more, you know, less and less hands-on. The winery was designed um, as a gravity winery, so, it, you know, it's went from being a three-level winery now to a four-level winery. So we have, you know, grapes coming in and then they're hand-sorted and they go into an open fermenter on a mezzanine floor, which then drains down to a, a tank uh, for settling, which then drains down into the underground cellar for maturation. So we... That that side of it's working really well. 
and then the other side is that I've never really liked stainless steel sort of ever and um, if I could I would never wouldn't have a stainless steel tank in a winery but they are very convenient they're easy to clean and so we use them now like if you go in the winery now where are we we're November and um, it's just about empty I think there's only two tanks they've got some wine in them all the wine is in oak pretty much mm-hmm. and that's we, we, we've moved to large format fooders and um, vats uh, from 1,000 to 3,000 litre capacity and I think um, I really like the wine made in those uh, fermented in those and stored in those I think the wine breathes during maturation and and there's a softening of the acidity, which is important for us in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll be expanding our uh, large format um, oak um, program. It's pretty capital intensive. Very capital uh, intensive project. Well, luckily we don't have an accountant working for us, and it's just <laughs> my wife and myself. And so we just say, okay, we'll just do without a holiday this year, and we'll just buy another three or four fooders. Yeah. And um, yeah, so we we don't we don't sort of make Wine to a to a price, make it for love, you know, because we enjoy it and mm-hmm. do the right what we think is the right thing, mm-hmm. yeah. And then hopefully the money will come. Something that I tend to find in uh, in in the wineries of biodynamic producers is a uh, cement egg. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about uh, c- not a cement cements? one? I've got a I've got a ceramic one. Yeah, yeah, six hundred liter one, which you know we've our first amphora. What well, we call the amphora, it's an egg. Um, that was 2012. So we've been doing skin contact whites. Actually, we've been doing skin contact whites since uh, our family since 1955. So really, in Riverland, all the Gordo was all skin contact whites. So we've done, I reckon, we've done about a maybe a hundred thousand tons of skin contact whites. Shitloads. You yeah. know, the fermenters were 20 ton back in the Riverland, and we'd, we'd fill them up with Gordo, ferment them on skins for a week. Roughly, yeah. and then we press them off, and then finish the fermentation off. Right. So that was a, a technique that my grandpa brought back from Istria. So he was obviously doing that back over there, and um, yeah. So I was, I was, I was I, you know, and I thought this is weird. What are you doing? You know, fermenting when I was as a young kid. What are you doing fermenting whites on their skins? This is, you know, that was not the the way things were taught at, at uni. You know, learning winemaking. And it's funny how we go the full circle. So seeing something like that with so much wine being made fermented on skins, then and then and back round to it being very popular again today. But that like the the idea that white varieties must be pressed and temperature you know has to be low and filtration mm. that kind of thing that that sort of only came around in the sixties seventies thereabouts like yeah no we're, we're family to milk was a, a producer that was pretty forward thinking and you know with their masan for example yeah so, so it doesn't surprise me at all that um back in the 50s yeah you know, well the, the, they'd the, always done the whites that. were on their skins it's very hard to press um gordo without fermentation as well so yeah i think it was a practical approach stabilization as well. yeah well it's just a slip skin variety so you go to press it and you can't get the juice out of it right unless you add enzymes right and so whether they had no enzymes or just preferred to ferment to get – and they needed body as well. They wanted tannin. The Italians wanted tannin in their white wines. Yep. They didn't want light, easy drinking, thin stuff. They wanted you know, gutsy white wines. And so for fermenting on the skins, we made this uh, hock, basically it was called, and it was Gordo and Sultana and you know Trebbiano, all sorts of varieties that were 
skin fermenter to um, get that tannin and structure. I remember seeing on like uh, Langton's like selling old bottles of hock from I don't know like Brown Brothers or something. Mm-hmm. I never I never understood what it was. It was like, <laughs> is that just like a, a different bottle shape or something? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I know. Um, but obviously, skin contact in a in a climate like Tasmania with whites is going to be mm. a very different proposition to mm. what it would have been in, in the Riverland, and obviously different varieties. What yeah, we, what you, you know, what totally, what skin yeah. contact you do down well, here? What are you looking for? Yeah, skin contact here. Obviously, not mass production bottle no. wine, so it's all about high quality, fine, elegant wines, and so. The first couple of vintages, 2012 and 13 vintages of, of, of um, skin, contact, skin contact wines were Riesling, mm-hmm. um, which took ages, like three or four years before you know, they were approachable. They were very uh, spicy and almost had curry-like characters. But then after about you know three to four years, they totally changed and became really interesting and just multi-layers of just beautiful complexity. Then I thought, well, while, while that was happening, I'd already decided, okay, I want to make a bit of a Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc. And then we moved to Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc blend, where we'd have like 80% Chardonnay, 20% Sauvignon Blanc. and um, Co-fermented? Co-fermented, yeah, in the same amphora. And um, and that, w- that worked really well, you know, with variable success between the vintages. And now I'm sort of determining, I'm working out you know, what blocks. I think it's all to do with the, the, um, the vineyard. And how I treat and the vines in terms of shoot thinning and leaf exposure, you know, leaf exposure, bunch exposure, to make sure like, to get the wine I want in the end. I think phenolic ripeness and and food exposure is very important mm. on these things. And that, you know that's something I picked up. You know, working with you know, Ribola Jalo in um, Radicon sure. by, by seeing the fruit in the vineyard, by harvesting the fruit, you say, "Whoa, look at this! This is bloody almost orange." Mm. You know, the fruit before it even goes into the fermenter. So Jala, I can see gold, the, golden. Yeah, and I can, you can see the the the, the 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 effect the sun has had on the fruit. Mm. And I think, okay, well, this is you know pretty important. And uh, and and you mentioned your son's now studying yeah. winemaking. Your keen has he already been involved with the? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he, he made some wine last year down at. Uh, we have another vineyard down the Huon Valley, mm-hmm. and uh, he made some wine down there, and uh, which will be released, I suppose, in, in a year or two. So he's he's very keen. He's um, loves his wines, and he works when he's not studying wine. He's working at East End Cellars selling wine. So he he's fanatical. He's crazy about it. He loves it. He loves drinking it and mm-hmm. and and the whole thing. Yeah. And is he sort of talking with you about interesting projects, like as far as you know? Yeah, yeah. Again, techniques and varieties. Oh, I don't know about techniques, you know, we very much. We still got a lot to learn. You know, you, you learn so much in the at uni, but you really got to learn on the ground. And and um, and number one place is really the vineyard. So the quality is made in the vineyard. Sure. And then winemaking is you know a caretaking role. How I see it. Yeah. And obviously um, now with the with, with the, the cellar door and the osteria here, mm-hmm. uh, you've had this for, for a number of years now. It's obviously a great opportunity mm. as far as wine tourism. There's a lot of people coming into into Hobart, whether it's to go to Mona or to go to one of the fine restaurants. It's a nice opportunity for to come for people to come out here and, and taste and mm. and meet you. Um, has that been really great to to have oh, a lot yeah. more people coming out? It's great. I mean, it sort of completes the whole picture of of. Um, Italian style or my, our, my experience of Italian style 
living, you know, it's drinking the wine and then enjoying it with friends and, and, and having food. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my father always said, you know, don't put wine up on a pedestal. You know, food is number one because, you know, it came from the wartime. So, you know, you can live without wine, but you can't live without food. So, well, particularly that part of Italy, it's yeah, a yeah, long and, lot and, and difficult history. Trouble, yeah. Lot of, World lot War One was just it yeah. was an absolute bastard. Oh, my father lost his winery in World War One. He lost it again in the Second World War. He said, oh, stuff this, you know, I'm taking the first boat out of the joint. And yeah. it, was either Can- it was either Canada or Australia, yeah. and it just happened to be Australia. He didn't really choose. He just, get me on, get me out of here. And, um, yeah, he came came here. But anyway... Yeah, so, you know, wine and... Um, Be grateful for what you have rather yeah, than, you know, yeah. elevating it. Yeah, so wine and food is just intrinsic in life and and um, don't get too carried away. Just enjoy it, you know. And so, yeah, the Austria is, is part of that. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I had the, the, the good pleasure of uh, having lunch here uh, mm-hmm. last May and, uh, yeah, I mean, the food's fantastic mm-hmm. and... Uh, Goes very well with uh, the Stefano Libiana mm. wines, mm. Uh, Steve. I just want to say thank you so much for making no some worries. time. It's yeah. uh, been really great to, to come back down, and mm-hmm. obviously uh, on this beautiful day, um, obviously slw.com.au is yep. the website, That's and it. people will be able to find uh, social media accounts on there. Yeah, so yeah, we've got our Instagram, Facebook. Twitter feeds all on that page. Awesome. Uh, Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, looking forward to tasting Mm. some more ones as well. No worries. Thanks, James. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and you can find me on social media at Intrepid Wino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And the podcast can be found on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, I'd love for you to check out my YouTube channel, uh, which is youtube.com forward slash intrepid wino. Uh, lots of different videos there, including, um, my videos chronicling my winemaking experiences and lots of episodes of Let's Taste with the Intrepid Wino, where I open up Australian and sometimes, uh, I think some New Zealand wines as well. Uh, and I think I've done a couple of, uh, Let's Taste videos of Stefano Ljubljana wines. So do check them out. Uh, please do subscribe, leave a comment, uh, on, one of the videos or more of the videos, um, like video and share it on social media. I'd love to hear from you there. Uh, of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on any number of different podcast uh, sharing platforms, uh, apps, programs, uh, iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, uh, Podbean. Uh, I think it's on iHeartRadio, maybe Spotify soon. Uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. You can get access to the back catalogue of episodes. Uh, and it's also a fantastic place for you to leave some feedback for myself uh, and also for guests by leaving a rating and review, uh, which also helps the podcast get out to a bigger wine-loving audience. Uh, of course, all the information is available on my website, intrepidwino.com, uh, as well as uh, all the writing I've done in the past, uh, chronicling my wine journey around the world. Uh, but guys, until next time, bye. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com.